Please stand as you're able for today's scripture reading. Today's lesson comes from the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That's okay, Mike. I understand how you could get tripped up on such a long scripture reading. (laughs) We were laughing. He said he must have practiced a whole lot for all those words. I don't select the scripture. I am assigned the scripture. (laughs) Again, I want to celebrate Father's Day for all of you who are celebrating that. Dad, kid, young, grown, old, at whatever point. Um, the only thing I would add to that is I hope it, that celebration does not include a tie. I pondered where I should wear a tie tonight. Today I was, you know, I've started retirement. It's Father's Day. You ought not have to wear a tie. You ought not have to receive one or give one. I hope your Father's Day is all about time and presence and sharing and building a story that you can share and remember later because that's when it's going to be most powerful. So for the last several weeks, we've been talking about being a neighbor. We've talked all over and about all sorts of things in terms of being a neighbor. Uh, And I think it really boils down in essence to what my Mississippi mother used to teach me, that it is all about the hospitality. And today we're going to continue on that conversation. As many of you may know, I spend time every year going over to Scotland and do spiritual renewal work there. I spend two, three weeks, kind of just depends on the year. And I wander into the hills and down the valleys or hollows, what they call glens and and up the mountains that they call bends. And I hike and I just spend time sometimes with a few folks, sometimes uh, just with myself and with the presence of God. And I do spiritual renewal work. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, well, why do you have to go to Scotland to do that? Can't you do that here? And the short answer to that question is, I go to Scotland because I am legally invited through their hospitality program. Now, what that means in essence is that in Scotland, I can look at any glen, any mountain, in any hillside valley that I want to hike, pull off on the side of the road, throw my backpack on and head out and start hiking. Doesn't matter if it's public, doesn't matter if it's private, wherever it is. I open the gate, I go through the gate. If the gate's closed, when I get there, I close the gate behind me. If they have a stile over the fence, which is basically like uh, an A-frame set of steps going up one side of the fence and down the other side, you walk up, you walk down, don't mess with the cows, don't mess with the sheep, leave the chickens alone, and just keep on. And you walk across private property. Most of my hiking is done across private property in Scotland. It is hospitality. It is the legal invitation they call the right to roam. You want to know how extreme? 
This past trip and a couple trips before when I was up in the little village of, of Braemar, it's, it's just about 10 or 15 miles from a place, a little castle they call Balmoral. I was able to walk all of that estate. Unique to that without any guards, any guns or anything else is that's where the queen lives when she's in Scotland. And yet the right to roam applies even to the estate of the queen. And I was wandering around and hiking in the acreage and in the woods and in the mountains around the queen's castle. It's simple hospitality. James in his epistle in the first chapter of the 27th verse that Mike read for us, says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Or to put it another way, to offer Christian hospitality to the least of these. Now, normally, when we hear the terms pure and undefiled, we would hear them applied to the quality of the ritual that is practiced with inside the church so that the liturgy might be pure and undefiled, so that the acts of, of sacrifice might be pure and undefiled, so that that which is being sacrificed and the reason it was sold in the temples is pure and undefiled, all of which really is internal. But leave it to James, the presumed brother of Jesus, to turn things upside down and now make an external proclamation about religion that is pure and undefiled. Now he applies pure and undefiled religion to the practice of how we live our daily lives. And he says pure and undefiled religion is offering Christian hospitality to the least of these. Now, if you hear that, what you begin to realize is that as far as James is concerned, hospitality, Christian hospitality offered to the least of these, to the orphan, to the widow, to the stranger, to the enemy, is ultimately the litmus test to whether our faith is pure and undefiled, whether our faith is real. James, often accused of being the epistle of straw, says blatantly, faith without works is dead. Throughout the whole epistle, he continues to recount that I don't care what you hear, sit in and participate in in the context of a service. I don't care what kind of lip service you give it when you walk out of here. If you don't live it, it ain't nothing. And it is certainly not a genuine faith. And he says, if you want to test that, test your Christian hospitality to the least of these. So for our purpose this morning, what I'd like to do is take a quick look at Christian hospitality. What is it and why do we practice it? taught a class on this and as best I can understand it and I condensed it, there are two key elements to Christian hospitality. 
And let me, let me just say right here, sometimes I may say radical Christian hospitality and sometimes I may say Christian hospitality. The two are the same. There's no way we can do Christian hospitality without it appearing radical to the rest of the world. It's just the way it is. The first element is that Christian hospitality is the sacred act of receiving the outsider and changing them from stranger to guest. Receiving the outsider and changing them from stranger to guest. The second element is that Christian hospitality is the sacred act of personal transformation. Let's start with the first one. Some of us might ask, why stranger to, Je- to guest, Jeff? And the short answer, frankly, is because that's the way Jesus lived. In the Gospels, we learn that Jesus came into this world as a stranger. He identified himself as a stranger. He spent time with strangers. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, verses 10 through 13. Give me just a second. I wasn't born Baptist doing sword drills. He says, he was in the world and the world came into him and through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. Jesus came as a stranger and the world didn't recognize him and the world didn't accept him. Think about it for a minute. Jesus, born, think about the nativity scene. Born in a stable someplace, outside of an inn. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody particularly cared. Nobody was going to make any room. He was just a strange kid that was going to be born. And 10 or 12 years later, after a pilgrimage into the temple, Jesus is left behind. He ditches his mom and dad, and he's sitting there with the elders of the temple, and he's talking to him and asking questions, and they're looking at him going, who are you? some kind of savant or, 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 or religious maniac. Or, 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 and yet this is the picture of the boy Jesus in the temple and they didn't have a clue who he was. Just this strange kid who was asking these profound questions and offering the possibility of answers that they'd never thought of. Think of Jesus each time he wanders into a new town. Think of the stranger Jesus who calls out to someone and says, come, be my disciple. I'll make you fishers of men instead of fishers in the sea. Jesus is a stranger. He comes as a stranger. He identifies as a stranger. And then every town he goes into, he is in the company of and ministering to and talking to and teaching and proclaiming to strangers. Why stranger? because it's who Jesus was and it's how Jesus lived. In the gospel of Matthew, I won't even read it to you because you know the parable. It's the parable of the separation of the sheep and goats. Remember that? And people are trying to find out what's happening at the end and he says, 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was a stranger and you received me. And then down further in that passage, he says the same things. He says, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison, you didn't come. I was a stranger and you did not receive me. Jesus says it, not me. If we don't receive the stranger, we are denied the kingdom of God. We are the goat. If on the other hand, we practice Christian hospitality to the stranger and through that sacred act, turn them from stranger to guest, the kingdom of heaven is ours by the will of God. It's a powerful thing. And as for the whole guest deal, well, ultimately that's just who Jesus was. Can't you hear the conversation between Mary and Jesus when he sets off? His mother Mary, and he's saying, you're going where? I'm, I'm out to do some preaching and teaching. Yeah, but I mean like where? How am I gonna know where you are and how am I gonna know you're okay? Well, I'm just going out. Well, where are you gonna stay? Well, I don't know. Who are you gonna stay with? I don't know. Well, who's your contact in that village? Well, I don't know. Drive a mother or dad nuts. And yet he goes prepared simply to be the guest. And you can pick any gospel you want and you read through it and through it and it becomes perfunctory and matter of fact. They don't even keep saying, and he went to the home of so-and-so. They're finally like, and then he was in the home and he was teaching because he is just consistently walking into a town prepared to be the guest and to have a host welcome him into the home, feed him, care for him, and then send him on the way to the next place where he can be guest all over. And if he is not being the guest, interestingly enough, if he's not the guest and entertained by the host or hostess, what he's doing is being the host himself and entertaining the rest as guest. You remember the day he was up on the mountain and he was preaching and there were thousands of people out there before him. And his disciples came and said, Hey, boss, we got to do something. It's getting late. We don't have any way to feed these people and hungry people or grumpy people. It's a long way back to town. And there's only two McDonald's between here and there. And next thing we know, Jesus stands there, becomes the host and takes a little bit of bread and a little less fish and begins to break it and bless it and feeds the thousands. This is the same Jesus who was host at the table of the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is the same Jesus who was host when he said to the lady, the woman at the well, I'm the living water. Drink from me and you'll live forever. And then later declared to all the world that he was the bread and he was the living water and he would host any who desired to eat and drink. The same Jesus who sat at the table on the night of the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper now because he was the host. And he took bread and he took the cup and he blessed them and he gave them to him after the meal. And he said, 
take and do this in remembrance of me. He was the host to everyone at that table. Ooh, let's back up for a second. To everyone at that table. Judas was at that table. He knew. He knew that Judas had already sold him out. He knew that later he would betray him, even with a kiss. And yet, Jesus' sense of hospitality, Jesus' radical sense of radical hospitality was to invite him in and host him at the table and bless him and pray for him regardless. Even though he knew who he was and what he was going to do. Yes, Christian hospitality is the tough but sacred process of receiving outsiders and changing them from stranger to guest. But what about that personal transformation, that other element in there, you ask? Well, I'm glad you did ask. Let me remind you of what we all know. We sometimes forget and for quite obviously and apparently from time to time would like to apply judiciously. That's that all of us, including the them, whoever the them are, including the orphan and the widow, including the stranger and the enemy are made by God and made in the image of God. We call it the Imago Dei. It is the sacredness, the holiness of every single human being that breathes. As such, we are all children of God. We are all the creation that God loves and chooses to live in. Now, I know we don't like that, and I know there are folks sometimes that work real hard at expelling the God who is in them and denying the God who made them, and they live lives that reflect that anger and that pain and that hatred. But the truth is, if you get right down to it, that there's not a single man who has enough effort to cast God's love from him or a single woman who has enough oomph to move the presence of God out of her soul. Because not a one of us, not any person that God has ever made is stronger or more willful than God. So, when we ask that stranger in to our homes, to our country, when we invite that stranger to our table, when we pass them on the street and see them and we look into their eyes, as Christians who love our Lord, somewhere in the depth of them, we should be able to glimpse 
the very presence of God in Christ Jesus. No matter how hard they try to hide it. Because that's where God is. Walter Brueggemann put it this way. He said, the God of the Bible is the strangest thing about the whole Bible. The God of the Bible is the strangest thing about the whole Bible because God is not like any other. He says, God is always for his people and with his people regardless. Wow. God's nearness, he says, is the transcendental power, not some majestic remoteness of a God up on a kingdom in a hill somewhere. It is the presence of God that is in the heart and the soul of every single person. And so as Christian believers, when we practice radical hospitality, radical Christian hospitality, and we accept and we receive and we welcome the stranger, we accept, we receive, and we welcome God. And we care for that which God cares for. And how can any believer look into the eyes of God in the eyes of another and not be personally transformed when we entertain God at our own table, in our own home, in our own little lives? That's the kind of transformation that changes us from the inside to the out. That's the kind of transformation that changes every element of our life. That's the kind of radical trans transformation that changes not only how we invite, but it changes everything even down to our politics. Because that's who God is. And so when... We read the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And we put it another way and we say, why should I be responsible for him or her? Radical Christian hospitality says, yes. Absolutely you are your brother's keeper. Absolutely you are responsible for him or her. because they are home to the very presence of God and because then you love what God loves and care for what God cares for. And that makes God happy, pleased, and well in the soul. You know, when I was a kid with two brothers and a sister, occasionally, not just occasionally, we would get into a rift. Occasionally, every five or 10 minutes, we would butt heads and we would end up fighting. And when it came to actually fisticuffs or rolling around, we were pretty good about not actually, we had kind of this unspoken thing. You don't ever hit anybody in the face, nothing, to, you know, just like, and you don't hit them below the waist. So it was all about body punching and wrestling and fighting and whatnot. And we'd be going at it and dad would come in and tell us to quit. And we'd go at it again as soon as he walked out of the room and, you know, it kept on. And finally he'd come in and say, y'all have got to stop. Your mother is in the other room. She's so upset. She's about to cry. You have got to stop. 
and we would stop and we would change our behavior. Not because all of a sudden we thought like Tandy was right when I knew he was dead wrong. (laughs) Because it upset my mother, whom I love dearly. And I would rather stop the battle and control my anger than hurt my mama. Who brought me into this world. God Almighty, mother and father who brought us into this world whose heart breaks when we treat each other like strangers and enemy. That's why Jesus said, love your enemy. I saw this IBM commercial the other day. I was watching the U.S. Open. Pebble Beach is awesome. (laughs) I was watching, and, and on comes this IBM commercial, and it's all about AI, you know, artificial intelligence. And it's, it's called the Tech Talks. Dear Tech, we need. Dear Tech, we need. And talks about all the things, and they're writing a letter to technology. And I was struck by a line, so struck I had to go look up their commercial online and hear it over and over again and just to, to say, yeah, that's really what they said. Here's the deal addressing artificial intelligence through technology, the statement was, we need tech to help us fight bias. We need tech to help us understand each other. Holy cow, is that where we are? Where we think artificial intelligence offered through technology is the answer to the bias in our heart to cast one another out as stranger rather than receive each other as guests. That we think artificial intelligence and technology is going to be the thing that's going to allow us to understand one another rather than sitting with one another because we invited each other into our presence and looked into them and saw the eyes of God and simply found out that they had a mama too and a daddy and lived some life that was hard that may have brought them to this place. And we found in them the glimpse of God that was lovable. Some of you may be thinking, I can't do this, Jeff. And if that's the case, you probably can't. But newsflash, the Christ who is in you can and will if you get out of the way. And then that same Christ will invite you to that same table. And you will go from being stranger to one part of the personality and aspect of Christ to guest yourself and know what it means to be fully loved. Quick story and I'm done. Read this book that I picked up in Scotland the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago from this little place called The Watermill in Aberfeldy. It's not published here yet. It's called The Wisdom of the Wolves. There's a symbiotic relationship of radical hospitality that is really cool. Wolves evidently have this relationship with ravens. Now, who would guess? I mean, talk about two entirely different creatures. One is of the air, one is of the land, you know, flies all over, feathers, fur. There's just very little, if anything, they have in common except for the air that they breathe. Let me tell you, ravens build their nest 
around the den of wolves. So that when the pups come out of the den for the first time, the ravens go down and start to pester them and pick at them. They pull their tail and they poke at them. And the little wolves learn to kind of crouch down and try to bounce on them and do their little hunting skills. And the ravens bounce out of the way and they do this thing. And they build this relationship. And the reason they build this relationship, and it's very intentional, they build this relationship is because later as they get older, they will, the wolves notice where the ravens fly. And if the ravens find a food source, let's say it that way. If the ravens find a food source, but they can't access because the hide is too tough for them to peck through. The ravens fly around it and make a bunch of noise and the wolves watch and they come and then they open the buffet table and they eat and eat until they begin to get full and the ravens come down and they start pestering the wolves and they literally start grabbing the fur at the end of the tail and pulling their tail and, and the wolves turn around and they keep this up until finally they realize it's not my turn and they go over here and they lay down and the ravens all come in and eat. And what the wolves are doing is, is laying on the perimeter, watching out for the grizzly bears because that's the enemy of all of them. They have this symbiotic relationship of radical hospitality, these two creatures, because as they come together and recognize that and work together, they are able to live in the fullness in which God intended for their lives. Now, if a wolf can do that, if a raven can practice that kind of radical hospitality and their life is enhanced because of it, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.